Go to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some, uh, some physical Bibles for those who prefer that kind of ma- that route. Uh, the, the electronic one and the screen stuff, that's, that's good. Con- technology is a good, convenient thing. But man, there's just something special about holding God's word in your hand. And so if you prefer that, that's, we want to make that available to you. And you'll find some uh, physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks underneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible, uh, we would invite you to take that one home. Just steal that and call it yours. Uh, I know it's a paperback. I know the font is small, but hey, we're on a budget. So there you go. Um, we, no, take that home. Uh, we, we think that God's Word is valuable, like really, actually valuable. Like He does something with it in an effectual way for His purposes. And so uh, and the, most notably that, that He reveals Himself to us through the Scriptures. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, the most valuable thing you can do is take that one home and start reading it. All right? And what, what I'm going to say this morning is, is in hopes and explanation of God's Word, but He doesn't need me. All right? he, he can do it without me. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that one. Genesis chapter 29. And so we're several weeks now into a series that we're calling The Story of God. Uh, and the premise isn't too complicated. I wouldn't call it simple, but it's not too complicated. We believe that the entire Bible is about Jesus. Like the whole thing. Not just, not just the, the New Testament stuff where Jesus explicitly shows up. Not just the, uh, the Old Testament prophecy stuff that's promising a coming Messiah hundreds of years before he arrives on the scene. That's, that's, that's obviously about him, but we think the whole Bible is about Jesus. Even, even the, the story of Abraham and the story of Adam and the story of Noah and all these different characters. Uh, Jesus himself thinks so. In Luke 24, uh, we kicked off our series several weeks back uh, talking about how Jesus, the day of his resurrection... Is walking with a couple of his followers. They don't know it's him. And he's explaining to them, the text tells us, that all the things concerning himself in the writings of Moses and the prophets. Right? The writings of Moses are the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus' name is never explicitly mentioned in, in the, any of those books. So what do you do with that? Well, we, we believe that, that by correctly reading the story of Adam or correctly reading the story of Moses, correctly reading the story of Abraham, we walk away from those stories, yes, with their own stuff, but also a deeper love for Jesus and a deeper understanding of what he's, who he is and what he's done. All right? And so if we read those stories correctly, we get a good idea of who our God is. And so the question we ask as we take this slow walk through all these character stories in the Old Testament is to answer the question, how does their story tell me about the much larger story, much more beautiful story of God? Now admittedly, that's a really big question. And so to help us out, we've taken up the practice of breaking it into four smaller questions. Those of y'all who have been here for the whole series, you ought to be able to tell me what those four questions are by now, but I'll go ahead and give them to you. How is this person raised up? What made this person a seemingly bad choice? What did God do to redeem them? And then finally, how does their story preach the gospel? It's my belief that if we answer those four questions, smaller questions well, then we can answer the much larger, how does their story tell me about the story of God question very well. Now, so far we've looked at Adam, and we've looked at Noah, and we've looked at Abraham, and we've looked at Sarah, and we looked at Isaac, and we looked at Jacob. Who do you think we're looking at this week? Those of you who just said Lee, it's because you cheated and looked at the bulletin. (laughs) And everybody who didn't see Leah either isn't paying attention to the bulletin or just doesn't have one yet. I'm going to go on not paying attention to the bulletin. All right. Now, we're going to look at Leah this this morning, and here's the deal. Three quarters of y'all have no idea who she is, or at least couldn't tell me her story in detail. Because Leah never, ever, ever, 
ever makes the Hall of Heroes. She never, ever, ever makes the Mount Rushmore of the Old Testament faithful. But there's something about Leah that I really want to look at this morning. And so let's figure out who this lady is. Uh, So some of you may be asking, why no special picture? Why the question mark? Because Leah is going to be described as pretty much the ugly sister. And I'm not dumb enough to fall into that trap. (laughs) But we can know some other things about her. One, she's known as weak-eyed. She's the third wheel. And maybe the most honored. You ready to look at the life of Leah this morning? All right, what's our first question? How was she raised up? Good, you're learning. All right. Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Verse 2, and he looked and he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep laying beside it. And for out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. Verse 8, but they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well, then we will water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Okay, so last week uh, we, we looked at the life of Jacob and we learned last week that Abraham's grandson, all right, uh, or like, like, yeah, that Abraham's grandson. So Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a couple of sons, Esau and Jacob. And we learned last week that Jacob is running off to his uncle Laban's house to live at his uncle Laban's house because he's been a naughty little boy, right? All right? He has stolen his brother's birthright. He had stolen his brother's blessing. And now his brother wants to murder him. And that's not figurative. He literally is looking to kill his brother because of how Jacob has acted. And so Jacob is essentially on the run. He's sent off to live at his uncle's house until uh, what the Bible tells us is his brother's wrath dies down and to find a wife for himself. He's got two jobs, wait out Esau's wrath and find you a good wife. So he's on his way to his Uncle Laban's house, and he's, he's got all this stuff going on, and he finally gets to Laban's place, and he finds a bunch of uh, flocks with their shepherds waiting to be watered by a well. And the reason why they're waiting is pretty simple. There's a giant rock on the lid. Wells are really, really valuable in this part of the world, and you've got to protect your investment, right? And so the plan, the normal plan, is to get all the flocks together with their individual shepherds, and then all those shepherds will work together to remove the large rock from the well. Because no, because one guy shouldn't be able to do it by himself. They work as a team, and they protect their well. But then Rachel shows up. And Jacob gets himself a glimpse. And he likes what he sees. And so he goes full-on junior high boy. 
and tries to impress her, and he moves the rock himself. Right? How you doing? <laughs> I mean, that's what's going on here, right? <laughs> hey, girl. How you doing? <laughs> that, that's exactly what's going on here. Normally, it takes multiple guys to move this rock. Jacob gets a sight of Rachel. He goes, okay. And he, he swells up, and he moves the rock himself. And yes, ladies, before you ask, every guy in the room has a dumb story just like this. In fact, you can maybe tell that story because they probably tried to do it with you. Yeah, he goes full junior high boy here. He tries to impress Rachel, and I guess it works because keep reading in verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Look at verse 17. And Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Okay, so call a time out real quick. We have to do something with this revelation, right? The text says that Leah's eyes were weak. So what in the world does that mean? Well, honestly, it's debated. There, there's, some, there's some people who land over here in one camp. There's some people who land over here in another camp. But usually, when, when there's a straightforward reading of the text, we need to go with that route. And so in all likelihood, Moses, the writer of Genesis, the writer of this story, is saying that Leah had really, really bad eyesight. Remember, this is happening in a time period where eyeglasses weren't a thing. And so it probably caused her to squint real tight. And it wasn't an attractive look for her. And so Leah's got this, this thing about her which kind of makes her overlooked. Now some of your translations may say that, that she was weak on the eyes or she looked weak to the eyes. I think this is probably a closer translation to what Moses intends. But whatever he intends, whatever he does mean by the fact that her eyes were weak, what is clear is that Leah is contrasted here with the, the appearance of her sister, right? But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So whatever Moses does mean by this phrase, he's not talking about Leah. He's not giving beautiful to Leah. And so we're left with the pretty strong assumption that Leah's probably used to living in Rachel's shadow all the time, right? Rachel gets... Loads and loads of attention. And Leah, not so much. And verse 18 bears witness to this. It says, Jacob loved Rachel. He said, I will serve you. He's talking to Laban about what their deal is going to be. He said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Gag me. Verse 21. 
Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban uh, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. So Jacob fulfills his seven years uh, of serving in order to, to earn the right to marry Laban's daughter, Rachel, and now it's time to collect, right? And we learned last week that, uh, for those of you who weren't here, that weddings in this culture are not ceremonies. They're consummations. So don't get out of your head the idea of walking down an aisle and staring longingly into each other's eyes as you recite vows back and forth in front of a crowd of people. That, that would have been a foreign concept to them. It, it, it's a, not a ceremony, a consummation. In their eyes, if you fulfill the marriage act, you're married, right? And so the night of, Laban puts his eldest daughter, Leah, into the tent instead of Rachel. Wake up the next morning, and lo and behold, it's not who Jacob thought it was, right? And guess what? He's not too happy about that. Would any of us be? He's not happy about it. But listen, he's also 100% married to Leah now. But he still wants to marry Rachel. He still wants her. He loves her. He wants to be with her. He wants to, to marry her. And so they come to an agreement that, that they'll fulfill the ceremonial week of the marriage. All right? And then after that, Laban will also give him Rachel an agreement for him working for another seven years. So great. Every, it all works out, right? The cheater was cheated against. The duper was duped himself. But they worked out the terms, and now everybody's happy, right? Jacob and Rachel are happy, right? But what about Leah? How do you think Leah feels about all of this? Coincidentally, that's also the introduction to question number two. Why is Leah a seemingly bad choice to be a part of God's story here? Like, we don't know how complicit Leah is in all this. We don't know if she and, and, and Laban conspired together for this plan. Maybe. The Bible doesn't say. We don't know if, if Laban just told her what was going to happen and she was playing the role of the obedient daughter. We don't know. Listen, maybe Leah understood that her prospects of finding a husband one day were really, really small, and so she was desperate. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say. But whatever did happen, Leah finds herself living as a third wheel now in Jacob and Rachel's love story. There's an extra character forced into the middle of their happily ever after ride off into the sunset. In fact, 
The text makes that explicit in verse 30, which says, Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Even though he's married to both, everybody knows what's going on. Not exactly the fairy tale that Leah dreamed of growing up, right? Ladies, was that your dream? That the knight in shining armor would begrudgingly allow you to be his second wife and hang out with them while he celebrated and gave his affections to your sister? Anybody dreaming of that one growing up? So, either Leah sinned or her father Laban sinned, but somebody sinned in this. And the repercussions of this has lifelong consequences for several people. But we're also talking about something much bigger than a love story today, aren't we? Because Leah is also the third wheel to God's redemptive plan. Lest we forget, this isn't just some rom-com in the middle of Genesis, right? God's doing something here. The only reason we know this story is because God is calling out one family to be a a covenant people for himself. That he's going to make a great nation out of them for the purposes of saving the world, right? And then all of a sudden, Leah is just kind of forced into the middle of all of this. Leah's the third wheel in God's redemptive plan, seemingly. She's just along for the ride, I guess. Except for that whole part about God constantly doing things upside down from the logic of this world for the purpose of making his name more famous. See, when you add in that piece, well, we discover that God actually has massive, massive plans for Leah. And now we get to answer question number three. How did God redeem her? Well, for starters, by giving Leah honor in her life. By giving Leah honor in her life. Let's keep reading verse 31 of chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was what? And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Verse 34, again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Okay, so we've talked about this in here before, but uh, in this culture, a, a wife that gives you an heir was a really big deal. And a wife that wasn't able to give you an heir was a really big deal. And so not only do we learn here that Rachel is barren, but God blesses Leah to give Jacob four sons. And she gives them all super passive-aggressive names. Super passive-aggressive names. In Hebrew, Reuben literally means, see a son. In a culture where giving an heir matters more than anything else for a wife, she says, she literally names her firstborn kid, I gave you a son. The next kid, Simeon, sounds like the Hebrew word for heard. She says, I have been heard by God. 
God heard my cry for love. Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. Now my husband will be attached to me, she says. Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. She gets to this point where she's like, forget Jacob. I'll just praise God on this one. She gives them all super passive aggressive names, but we can keep reading. Verse, chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? And then she said, here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that, I may, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant, Bilhah, as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. Okay, so jealousies are starting to, to bubble up to the surface here, Right? Rachel can't conceive, she blames Jacob, Jacob gets mad at her. And so Rachel's plan to fix all this is to give her servant to Jacob as another wife and then to claim that kid as her own. Now that's going to seem weird to us in our culture, but not theirs. In fact, if you remember, Jacob's grandmother, Sarah, did something exactly like this when she tried to give Hagar, her servant, to Abraham, right? How'd that work out for them? Badly, the answer is badly. This time it works. This whole thing is getting really, really complicated. But it also works. If you're keeping score, Jacob now has six sons between Leah and Bilhah. And so this whole make of you a great nation thing is starting to ramp up a little bit, right? We're starting to put our foot on the gas. But now it's time to go full-blown crazy. Like, holy cow, did I just read that correctly? Crazy. Verse 9, when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. And so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. Notice that these names are all trending towards happy thoughts now. Uh, Verse 14, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Little catty, but let's keep going. Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. And so he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages, because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now, now my husband will honor me, because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterward, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. So we just turned the drama knob up to 11, right? Follow me here. Leah buys the right to sleep with her husband from her sister, who's also married to the man, for the cost of some tubers that her son picked. Like, seriously? Seriously? I'll say this till the day that I die. Anybody who is unimpressed with the Bible has never read it. Like, 
full stop, I, I, I'm kind of serious. I have very little patience with people who say, ah, it just doesn't appeal to me. You tell me immediately, did you have no idea what's in there? Jerry Springer couldn't dream this nonsense up. <laughs> I mean, if you saw this on a daytime soap opera, you'd be like, no, nah, I'm going back to the price is right. But all of these crazy circumstances leave Jacob with 11 kids, 10 sons and one daughter. And again, we're keeping score here because that's what we do. Six sons and one daughter directly from Leah, two of them belonging to Leah through her servant, and two of them belonging to Rachel through her servant, and pretty young Rachel is still barren. Pretty young Rachel is still barren. In a culture, reminds you, where giving your husband an heir was a really big deal and not giving your husband an heir was a really big deal. Jacob has got a massive, massive family here, but it's not coming in the way he dreamed of going into it. So Leah may have started out as a third wheel, she may even still be experiencing that, some of that from her husband at this point in the story. But everybody else knows who's, know who the most honored wife is. Everybody else in the community, regardless of how Jacob treats her, everybody else surrounding them knows what's up. God gives Leah honor in her life. But that's not all he gives her. He also gives Leah honor in her death. Fast forward in the story, uh, Rachel cries out to God. God eventually opens up her womb and she gives Jacob two sons of her own, Joseph and Benjamin. But she dies in childbirth with Benjamin. And in Genesis 35, we're told the story of Rachel's death and burial. Let's read that real quick, starting in verse 19. So Rachel died. And she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb, and it is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. So Jacob loves Rachel. He, he, that's never not been the case. And so when she dies, it breaks his heart. He, he sets up this special pillar over her tomb, over her grave. And so he gives her honor in her death, right? But it's also on the side of the road. Did you catch that? It says, Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. They're on their way from point A to point B. Rachel dies in the, in somewhere in the middle and they bury her somewhere in the middle. Now, turn with me real quick to Genesis 49. This is happening second, decades later, multiple decades later. Uh, God has brought his people because of a famine from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. Jacob is about to die, and he's given his sons instructions for what to do with him after he dies. Right? Tells them what he wants them to do. And in Genesis 49, this is what Jacob tells them. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field, uh, with the field of, from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. And so he tells them, take me home, right? 
Take me home to, to, to the family burial place. Bury me in the cave of Machpelah. Look at verse 31. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried who? Leah. Not Rachel. Is buried in the family tomb. Leah is honored in her death. Yes, Rachel got a statue. It's not not special. The people in Moses' day can still show you where it is. It's a valuable thing. But Leah is buried with the patriarchs. God gives Leah honor in her death. But there's a third way she's redeemed. Not only is she given honor in her life, not only is she given honor in her death, but she's also given honor in her lineage. So Jacob's 12 sons essentially become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So what tribe does Jesus come from? Judah. And whose son is Judah? Leah's. Which means the lineage of Jesus is not traced through beautiful young Rachel, but through weak-eyed Leah. Now, why does that matter? Because it's with this context that we get to answer question number four today. How does her story preach the gospel? Revolutionary answer for you. Ready? The exact same way that God preaches the gospel through every other person in the Old Testament. The exact same way. The exact same way that God chose the lying, adulterous pagan named Abram. And the same way he chooses Isaac over Ishmael. The cheater Jacob over Esau. He also chooses Leah over Rachel for one consistently grand purpose. God is actively choosing what the world sees as weak. What the world sees as despised. What the world sees as powerless. What the world sees as lacking in prestige in order to push his redemptive plan forward. Or we could point to Isaiah 53 and let him tell us in a way better than I ever could. Talking about Jesus several hundred years before Jesus would even be born, Isaiah says this, For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So over and over and over and over and over again throughout this story of God we see that God is not impressed with the things that you and I tend to be impressed by. Not even close. The things that we exalt and build up, build up for ourselves in this world in our own eyes, God has no interest in. He doesn't care. Not one bit. He consistently, over and over and over again, calls out and powerfully uses the character that would leave the world baffled. What do you mean you choose them? You got this option over here. What in the world would you choose person B when you got person A? Person A's got this and this and this going for him. God says, I don't want that. I want this. 
over and over and over and over again throughout the Bible. We see a God who consistently chooses and uses the one that the world would never expect until eventually he comes himself in the exact same way. And so like Leah, Jesus was unassuming and overlooked. And like Leah, Jesus was despised and rejected. And like Leah, Jesus was ultimately honored by God. We have one overarching theme to this series. And I know some of you are wondering, are we really going to go through this every single week? And the answer is yes. <laughs> yes. I've got to beat this drum because if we don't beat this drum, you miss the point of the Bible. The second we stop making this the theme to the series, we make the Old Testament characters about us. And we look for heroes to moralize and to copy. The stars of their stories aren't the characters themselves. No, God raised up blank to be a shadow of a more perfect blank to come in Jesus. And so today we learn that God raised up Leah. Not pretty young Rachel. Weak-eyed Leah to be a shadow of a more perfect Leah to come in Jesus. The story of God is no small deal. It is easily the greatest action adventure drama the world will ever know. It's in process from the beginning of this world, beginning of creation to the very end of this place. He is redeeming and saving for one solitary reason that's his, that his entire creation will forever see just how good and just how glorious he is. This is the story of God. So how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your response is to press into God, right? You do that most efficiently, best, through his word. You chase after him there. It's what he's given it to us for. We can take another step into this. Maybe your story is... A lot like Leah's. Maybe you long desperately to be honored by others and noticed by others and appreciated by others, and it's just never come. And out of a deep and pastoral love for you, I want to gently tell you that you've probably wasted a lot of time chasing after honor in the wrong place. That if they could give it to you, it would never last. And so if you, even if you could finally get it from fill-in-the-blank person, it would still have a shelf life and never be as satisfying as what you thought it was. But when our identity and value are found in the God who loves us and created us and saved us and sustains us, who cares what anybody else thinks? They can come and go. Today's a good day to repent of that. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have a couple of folks up front here to, to talk and pray with you if that's something that would be valuable for you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, man, I'm glad you're here. We say it every week. We hope you find this to be a safe place to work that the truth claims of Jesus and his gospel. Keep hanging out. Keep seeking after truth. Keep asking good questions. We'll try to give you some good answers once in a while. But you can respond to God's word this morning too. You do that by meeting the one that this story is ultimately all about. You do that by repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus alone for salvation. The debt that you and I owe for our sin was joyfully paid for on the cross. Or like, like Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. 
So if that's you, you get a chance to respond this morning as well by meeting this Jesus. He, he calls us to repent of sin and call on him as Lord, to trust him and his work on our, our behalf. And so if that's you, we want to give you a chance to respond today too. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and we're going to sing one more song. And that's a time for all of us to respond together. But listen, if, if you're here and you don't know him, that's a chance for you to press in and, and come to know him this morning. So we'll have a couple of people up front here to talk, myself included. And we'd love to walk you through what that looks like. But let us all respond to God's word this morning. God, you're good this. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the story of Leah. I have aspirations daily of being a Rachel. Being the one who's given the attention, given the honor, given the notoriety in our, by those I love and am with. I'm more of a Leah than I like to admit. But you're not impressed by Rachel's. You're actively using the Leah's. God, would you help us respond well this morning? Would you help us let go of the things that we chase after to please and satisfy and exalt ourselves? Help us put our grip instead on, on you. God, if there's, there are people in here who don't know you, would you show yourself to them this morning? I'm convinced that when we see you as you are, we are forever changed by you. So reveal a bit of yourself this morning. God, help us to read the Bible well. Not looking for a place to insert ourselves into the story and make ourselves the hero, copy their example. May we find you deeply there. God, we love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Yeah.